Two weeks ago, we had the great joy of looking at Psalm 1 together. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. We saw how the psalmist separates those who enjoy success and delight from those who endure sadness and destruction. We looked at that so that we would drink deeply, deeply from and bathe our minds in God's Word. And so I asked you to go to 10 people who know you well, who are plainly affirmed in our church as faithful, mature believers, and ask them, This question, do you perceive me to be avoiding evil, delighting in God's word, prospering in all things, and yielding much spiritual fruit? Now for some, the difficulty of finding 10 people who could affirm that might be the problem. For others, might be finding 10 people could be that you have no relationships at all. And that is certainly the case with some. But it's just as much a problem to just have a few relationships. If you say, you know what, I can't think of 10 people in our church that know me well enough that I could go to to ask that question. That is a massive problem. Either that or you're new. If you're new here, then that's not only understandable, it's normal. But for the person who can't and won't go and find a handful of people to say, please tell me how you think I'm doing with regard to being a person who delights in the word and is therefore blessed. And so pride would be the reason that a person wouldn't try. Pride would lead a person to think, I'm fine the way I am. Why in the world would I care what anyone else thinks of me? Which is a clear and bold rejection of all the one another's in the Bible. I asked you to genuinely plead with mature, loving Christians to honestly assess your life in light of the psalmist's spiritual blueprint for the man who is blessed. The man who won't be blessed is the man who chooses pride over what it means to really be blessed. He would rather live in the pseudo-blessing of a non-blessed life than to actually experience blessing, which requires humility. It requires a rejection of his pride. It requires a willingness to look honestly at his life through the lens of other people who actually do it for him while he refuses to do it. You could ask it this way. 
Are you the spiritually prosperous person drinking deeply from God's word, satisfied in him, influencing others to walk with him? Is that you? Or are you regularly influenced by ungodly people and very likely sitting under God's wrath destined for his judgment? Another way to go to those ten people would be to say, do you perceive me to be not walking with the wicked? Not standing with sinners? Not sitting with scoffers? But rather delighting in the law of the Lord and therefore spiritually strong and healthy, yielding spiritual fruit, prospering in all things? Or... Do you perceive me to be subjecting myself to wicked people, wicked music, wicked video games, wicked agendas, wicked systems of thought, psychology, and otherwise? In an email that week, I asked you to read Psalm 1, to briefly go over your sermon notes and think about the purpose of the passage, and then ask yourself, Who is helping you live in reality? Is there anyone in your life who can be boldly honest with you about you? If not, be certain you simply do not live in reality. You can be certain of that fact. If there are not those who can come to you and address you for who they see you to be. A man thinks his way is right until another comes to examine him. And if one person telling you the truth about you is helpful, why not ten? Why not? It's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. Surely ten is somewhere around a multitude. If there are not 10 people in our church who know you well, you are either very new with us or you have not been faithfully involved in the one another's with your family group and you need to get grafted into a family group right away. But for many of you, this has become a way of life, delighting in God's word, avoiding evil, surrounding yourself, legitimately surrounding yourself, embracing people in your life who will help you with that as well as Surrounding yourself with those that you can help. That's normal Christianity. That's normal Christianity. That's not spiritual gianthood. That's basic Christian faith. Surrounding yourself with people who will tell you the truth about you. People who you can tell the truth about them as well. Many of you have been living that way for years And the benefits show in how you respond to others' sin, how you respond to your own sin. You respond to others' sin with grace. You respond to your own sin with repentance. So as we looked at Psalm 1, we saw that Psalm 1 is very personal, and it focuses on the law of God. It speaks of the man, the man, who delights in the Lord and in his word. Psalm 2 is corporate. 
It's national and it focuses on the future. Now, lest you confuse Israel with the church, just know that, yes, this was originally intended for Israel, but it applies to us today in principle. The theology of the Psalms is every bit as much for you and me as it was for national and religious Israel and will one day be for national Israel. There is a coming day when God, according to Romans 11, will restore national Israel to himself. Everyone who is of Jewish descent, who lives on the earth in that day, will be restored unto faith to him. Obviously not those who have gone from this earth, but those who are still living will be redeemed. Psalm 1 describes the man Jesus Christ, not in particular. In other words, you don't see his name there, but it certainly describes him, does it not? He who meditates on the law day and night, he who does not stand in the place with sinners nor sit with scoffers. Psalm 1 describes the man Jesus Christ who truly meditated on the law of God day and night and by no means took counsel from the wicked nor stood in the way of sinners nor sat or got comfortable with scoffers. Psalm 2 sees Jesus Christ as the King of kings, not only a faithful, God-trusting man, but the King of kings and Lord of lords. Psalm 1 deals with God's blessing on individual men and the judgment of those who are wicked. Verse 6 says, the way of the wicked will perish. Psalm 2 deals with the judgment of the Gentile nations, but also the direct individualized warning that the son will become angry with any man's sin, but for the man who takes refuge in the son, he will be blessed. So, while the wicked will experience the wrath of the judge of heaven, the spiritual refugee will experience a blessed life with the king of kings. You read along silently as I read it aloud. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Through the eyes of King David in Psalm 2, we see the glory of the King of Kings as he pours his wrath out on the wicked who will die, but blesses those who take refuge in him 
and will certainly live. I want you first to see the divine denunciation in this passage. Point number one, divine denunciation. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? When you think of the nations who raged against the Lord, who raged against Israel, who still to this day rage against Israel, you might first think of Babylon or Syria. Or in our time, you might think of Iraq or Iran. You probably didn't think of Israel. The nations who raged against the Lord and who do rage against the Lord do so obviously. But Israel raged against the Lord. That's in the term peoples. The peoples. The people. Israel. Not only then, but especially today. Those who walked as children of God, as part of Israel would betray him from time to time, but national Israel today has no interest in the world, uh, in the Lord. The Messianic Jew is the rare Jew in our time. But as the nations raged against the Lord, the peoples plotted in vain, and they certainly plot in vain today to cause trouble not only for the Lord, but especially for those who follow him. How best to do harm to the Lord, but to do harm to those who love him. It says the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed one, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, let's free ourselves from who the Lord is. This is an attack on the Trinity. Uh, in our studies in Christology and in pneumatology and in theology proper recently, we've looked at a number of living heresies, Apollinarianism, Arianism, modalism, all these things that are an attack, a theological attack on the character of God. Now, in the day in which David wrote this, he was speaking fundamentally about the physical attacks, the attacks of war from pagan nations against Israel. But those bonds to be broken were bonds between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. So the effort to break that bond is to do something to drive a wedge, to do something to create division. The most clever way Satan has gone about doing that is not by killing men's bodies, but by attempting to take their souls by promoting a heresy regarding the Trinitarian truth about the Godhead. Jesus said, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And so it's easy for us to declare heresy amongst those who teach such things directly and publicly. But what about you? Do you really believe the truth about the bonds between the Father and the Son, or do you just sort of acquiesce because you've heard me say it 12 or 15 times. Friends, it's critical, and I mean eternally critical, that you rest in the Godhead for who he is. You say, well, wait a minute, I'm a new believer. I would say rethink that if you are not convinced from Scripture about the Godhead. 
there are those who plot against the Lord and plot against your soul so that you might think you're a believer, persuading you to have some sort of special sentimental affection for the Lord that bypasses the truth of who he is. And while you don't even know it, you're worshiping Satan rather than the actual God of heaven. They plot against the Lord. They scheme against the Lord. They, they trick people. They bamboozle people. And they do it in such a way that would prevent them from literally and genuinely coming to the Lord of heaven. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now think about this. When and where and how does this happen in our day? Sure, there are wars going on throughout the world, and some of those wars are directly uh, against the people of Israel, but that's national in Israel. Those people don't know the Lord. Some do. But nationally speaking, Israel is not children of God today. Where does this happen? Let us cast away their cords from us. You'll hear this phrase, don't put God in a box. God put himself in a box, and that box is called the Bible. Now, we don't know everything there is to know about the Lord from the Bible, but everything we know about the Lord is in the Bible. We can't know anything else. There's nothing uh, there's no other avenue by which we can understand who he is. And it's always experience, experience in liberal theology, those who spend a lot of time studying the jots and tittles of the word of God but don't really believe it. Andy Stanley. I warned you about Andy Stanley many, many months ago. Andy Stanley is the son of the well-known Charles Stanley. And Charles Stanley is milquetoast at best when it comes to theology. Andy Stanley is an outright heretic. He has said, unhitch yourself from the Old Testament, and he's doubled down since then. He's saying Christians are not obligated to obey the Old Testament. And so a lot of people follow him. And a lot of people follow him into that heresy, believing that somehow we are not obligated to obey the law of God. We are. We are. So this is, a, this is really a, a divine denunciation here. The Lord is giving an assessment. Uh, uh, it's a an eternal inspection of the hearts of those who devise things against the Lord. The person who reads the Bible and finds things that he doesn't like, and so he takes other things in the Bible and he pits those things against the things he doesn't like. Uh, John Hagee is a guy who's well known for this regarding the doctrine of election. A person asked me to read his book. He had written a book and... Um, Guy gave me the book, said, Will you look at this? And I got into it, not very far. Uh, and on one page, uh, he stated that the doctrine of election is in the Bible. And about a page and a half later, I read, If the doctrine of election is true, then God is merciless. 
So I stopped reading. I had other things to do. I would encourage you not to read John Hagee. He is a heretic. Not just because he doesn't believe in the doctrine of election. There are other problems. But it starts with that. When you see things in the Bible that you don't like. And so what do you do? You turn to the ungodly pseudo-preacher who will affirm your interests in thinking things that are not true about the person of God. And God displays a clear denunciation. He spells it out in Psalm 2. The first three verses put a spotlight on the person who schemes against the things of the Lord. It's a divine indictment on the person who does not like the sovereignty of God. Well, two, I want you to see divine disrespect. This is righteous ridicule. Verse 4 says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. As I said, it's righteous ridicule. Heavenly hilarity. Divine derision. It's a mountain of mockery. It's one thing when man mocks you, but when God belly laughs, it's a monumental declaration that you've wasted all your time, your efforts, your resources. You've wasted your life. And too many men in pulpits do this for the specific purpose of drawing in as many people as possible. As many people as possible. And were you to sit in an environment like that, and many of you have, you would see that there is little to no effort to nurture godliness in people, godlikeness in people. That's not the purpose. That's not the point. The idea is to increase the numbers. God has a divine disrespect for those who plot against the truth of the Lord. And I've told, I've told you so many, many times, I honestly am never even remotely tempted to do things that are going to attract lots of people. Now, I'm hopeful that more and more people will find out about our church, but we would never do anything other than proclaim the power of the inerrant word of God, specifically the gospel of God, so that people would be interested in coming back. That, that way, nothing will come back to bite me. Nothing. If we simply proclaim the truth of the gospel and we trust the Lord to do the saving rather than our persuasiveness, right? Paul said, I did not come to you with eloquence of speech. I have no interest in being a professional pep talker, you know, a motivational speaker. I have zero interest in that. My interest is in your soul, your eternal soul, and those upon whom you have influence. You know? Not only those you know, but those who you will know one day. And my hope is that as we spend time in the Word of God, that each of us is being drawn into a deeper interest in resting in the sovereign truth of God's Word, that we can believe that He, in fact, as He has decreed He will, will save the elect. We know He will. He's promised He will. That is greatly why we share the gospel. Listen, I'm far more motivated to share the gospel now than when I was fooled by Arminian theology. 
far more committed to sharing the gospel. What was I motivated by in the past? Fear. I was motivated by intimidation and manipulation. You know that every time you run into somebody, you've got to share something with them that's going to get them to ask Jesus into their heart. That's nonsense. I don't know who God's going to save. I don't know. I can't know. I know who will listen, right? You know who will listen, and I want to be winsome and friendly and warm. We all need to be that. We need to be gracious. We need to be loving. We need to serve the lost. We need to pour ourselves into our neighbors. We need to be trusting that the Lord will cause people to see us, see that there's a new song in our heart, and he'll put that song in their heart. We need to trust that he will do that. But God has no respect for those who try to be theologically innovative. And especially when that's driven by an apology for the truth about God. It shouldn't be perplexing that the most faithful shepherd is the one who genuinely rests in what the Bible says about the chief shepherd. It shouldn't be surprising, but sadly it is. Unfortunately, in many Reformed circles, in many Calvinistic circles, pastors are not known for their grace. How odd and how tragic. Psalm 37, verse 12 says, The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. In our modern vernacular, God is saying, Seriously? You think that your plans against me are going to thwart my sovereign decree? It is well within God's sovereign decree that man commits evil. It is completely within God's sovereign decree. James tells us God cannot commit evil. And yet in nearly every scenario where you see man committing evil against Israel, if you back up, if you go in reverse and look at the beginning of the passage, what you see is that God went to those people to bring calamity against Israel. God initiated that. And who does God hold responsible for their actions? God holds them responsible for their actions. That's the dual reality of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. I don't pretend to have fully comprehended that, but I believe it. You believe anything else. You believe in a non-sovereign God. This is reminiscent of Job 38, verses 1 through 7. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? You know, I picture the Arminian Christian in heaven hearing these words from the Lord. How dare you? I've spent so much time thinking low thoughts about me because you were convinced you needed to apologize to people for what I had said about myself. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? What was Job's primary complaint? God, this isn't fair. That's the height of Arminian theology. That's not fair. Fair would have been if Job had been graded on the curve against everyone else, he wouldn't have experienced any difficulty. He was the most righteous man in the world. 
And yet what did he experience? The greatest pain in the world. Trials and difficulties beyond measure. The loss of his family. The loss of the health of his entire body. Scraping boils. Can you imagine? That children would mock him because of the hideousness of how he appeared when he had been a man of great esteem in the city. Job was crying out for fairdom. And here you have people plotting against the Lord, against the bonds of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Job 38 verse 3 goes on to say, Dress for action like a man. This is why we have iron men. Men who will come and experience the the thwarting, scathing difficulty of looking at sound theology and what it produces in the Christian. It produces faithfulness to people. It produces a willingness to give your life to others instead of simply focusing on you and your career or your car or your culinary skills or whatever. Dress for action like a man. Robe yourself in the truth. Be willing to say what the truth is. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy? When I think of this passage, uh, I always think of further where the Lord says, do you even understand how the birthing of goats works? Seems pretty simple. I don't understand it. I've been there for six births. I don't understand it. I know it's very real. Seems to be pretty painful. But I don't understand it, and I will not pretend that I fully understand everything to understand about God, and therefore I certainly won't try to undo it. This is what Job was attempting to do. Further in chapter 39, verse 13, listen to this. The wings of the... What in the world is he talking about ostriches for? The wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but are they the pinions and plumage of love? For she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them and that the wild beast may trample them. She deals cruelly with her young as if they were not hers, though her labor be in vain. Yet she has no fear because God has made her forget wisdom and given her no share in understanding. When she rouses herself to flee, She laughs at the horse and his rider. Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrifying. He paws in the valley and exults in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword. Upon him rattle the quiver, the flashing spear, and the javelin. With fierceness and rage, he shallows the ground. 
He cannot stand still at the sound of the trumpet. When the trumpet sounds, he says, Aha! He smells the battle from afar, the thunder of the captains and the shouting. These are animals. The ostrich is comical. The horse snarls and snorts with a fearful cry that would cause most to want to run from him. But the ostrich, in her foolishness, laughs. This is emblematic of God's laughter of mankind. That even the ostrich and the horse, who have little to no knowledge, laugh at things. They laugh at those who would cause them harm. God laughs at those who would cause him harm. Verse 5 says, Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. See, the very words of the Lord, if understood, produce fear. The words of the Lord produce fear. The person who mocks at God's word, rolls his eyes, does everything he can to distract others from hearing the word of God, does not fear God because he does not understand it. We saw this repeatedly. We've seen it numerous times in the book of John. He does not heed God's word because he does not understand it. He does not have ears to hear. So what does he want? He wants a substitute religion. He wants milk toast preaching. He wants funny preaching. He wants that which soothes his flesh. That's what he wants. God laughs at him. God's wrath is coming. Again, verse 5 says, He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. We saw a small glimpse of this in John 18, verse 3. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. You are familiar with the Greek derivation of this term, ego eimi. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Because in the moment, there was at least some glimpse of the reality of who he is. And it was who he was claiming to be. And so... You find yourself not at least fearing the God-man as those Roman soldiers who came to arrest him feared him. Then you are in a desperate state and you sit under the wrath of God and you are sitting under divine disrespect Verse 6, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. See, the coming judgment and triumph on the Mount of Zion will shake all men, all men, either into repentance or into rejection. The king being set on Zion, my holy hill, obviously 
literally as David in the day, but it looks forward prophetically to the person of Christ who will reign in Judah. He will one day return to reign as the king of kings. Third, I want you to see divine dominion. Divine dominion. You here have the decree of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. I was sadly listening to the Jesus Christ show on the way in this morning. If you haven't heard of that before, that's this radio program where this man speaks as though he is Christ. I'm not certain that he actually thinks he is Jesus Probably not, but that's the draw of the show. And so people call in. They call in to ask questions, and he answers them as if he is Jesus. This morning he said that so many have blamed the Jews for my death. He speaks in first person. So many have blamed the Jews for my death, and that's ridiculous. That's not what happened. Really. Paul tells us in Thessalonians that that's exactly what happened. It was the Jews who took his life. But the thing that really caught my attention in the seven-minute drive here this morning was that one caller said to the host, well, hello there, young man, to which the host responded, young, 2,000 years is not very young, now is it? Which reflects the reality that he doesn't understand the person of Christ. Jesus was begat as a man, But he is not 2,000 years old. There is no time frame for his age. He is eternal. He's God in heaven. And yet, here he speaks of this mutually intimate relationship that he shares with the Father. He says, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This speaks of the incarnation. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Certainly Jesus remembered this in Matthew 4 when Satan promised him the same thing if he would only cheat to get it. Jesus meditated day and night on the word. He would have remembered. I don't need to give in to Satan's temptation to take what I know is already stored up for me anyway. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Well, the day is coming where there will be a physical war, a physical breaking, the use of a physical rod. When he who is a lamb will return as a lion and will physically destroy his enemies. The same is true with non-truth. The person who attempts to redefine what God has said about himself will one day be proven a liar. Read Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6 for that. He will be proven a liar. Romans 14, 11 says, For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. And then Paul gives this so that expression. If this, then this. He says, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now, think hard about this right now. 
What is it theologically or theopractically, theologically, that you, you know is there, but you continue to reject it? Or theopractically, orthopractically, that you're living, that you know is disobedience to the Lord? What is there in your life that you have yet to resist and reject and repent from? You know, for some it's hard attitudes, it's, uh, it's judgmentalness, it's uh, a disdain for others with a condescending attitude that my behavior is better than theirs. That's what it is for some. For others it's bitterness, jealousy. It might even be full-on hatred. For some, it's sexual immorality, be it physically or with the eyes. You know, men, those of you who have children, do you think your kids don't notice when you watch women who are not your wife? Seriously. You think somehow that escapes your kid's vision. It doesn't. And those of you who are not married, do you think that those in your life don't see it? If you've given your life to pornography and yet you have a very judgmental attitude toward those who teach things that you disagree with. God, of course, knows that. And this passage is very, very clear. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, some have said, you know, nobody ever came to faith in Christ by anything other than grace. Well, that's true, but it's many times the warning that comes with that grace that is an expression of that grace. The most graceless thing you can tell someone is something that's untrue about the character of God and untrue about what it means to be someone who rests in Him. The person who continues in his sin and yet declares himself to be of the Lord, he violates the command to not take the Lord's name in vain. That's what that means. It has very little to do with what comes out of your mouth, although it has something to do with that. But it has far more to do with a willingness to profess the name of the Lord and to privately live clearly with a disinterest in what it means to honestly represent him. But, as the Scripture promises, not only here, but also in Philippians 2, every knee one day will bow. The person who lives hypocritically and does a wonderful job of convincing himself that he has other people fooled, one day his knee will bow. But it will be too late. The fourth thing I want you to see this morning is a divine death threat a divine death threat. We've seen a divine denunciation, in other words, a proclamation of the guilt of those who plot and plan against the Lord and his people. We've also seen divine disrespect, really a, a ridicule, a righteous ridicule of those who attempt to thwart the things of the Lord, either physically or theologically. And now we've seen divine dominion that God in and of himself, is in fact sovereign. He holds sovereignty over all things. But now I want you to see this divine death threat because this is where the last opportunity for hope shows itself. Many times a warning precedes salvation. You see that sign as you come to the intersection and it says, Dep. 
And that's not an accusation. Some of you will get that later. But what that is is warning you that there's a low spot in the road, and if you're not careful, you might destroy your vehicle. Or on the other hand, this crazy red sign that says stop on it that nobody in California knows how to heed. That sign has prevented a whole lot of car accidents. Things like that. Those warnings precede redemption. They precede the moment during which someone almost died. That's what warnings are for. That's what speed limits are for. That's what police officers are for. What a crazy thing that a large percentage of our nation has developed disdain for those who give themselves to protect us. And why? Why? They don't want to live by the law. They don't want to live in light of the fact that there are warnings. There are those who do what they do to be a warning. You know what I'm talking about. Those times you've put your seatbelt on because you saw the police officer driving towards you about 100 yards away. And of course, we've talked about it before, the red lights in the rearview mirror, and your heart races a little bit. Why? Because you have some respect for the law and what the law can and should do. This divine death threat is not talking smack. It's not NBA trash talking. This is a true, legitimate warning. I can and I will. I prefer to be that kind of person myself rather than giving verbal threats to my children. I would rather just help them understand how things work and then explain afterwards. That's biblical parenting, right? The child who whines, the child who screams, the child who repeatedly not only gets away with doing that, which the Scripture requires he not do, but his parents actually nurture it. Oh, he's just tired. He's just hungry. There are times where that's certainly true. But the Scripture commands that we discipline our children while there is hope. And as in Hebrews 12, the Lord disciplines those whom He loves while there is hope. And for some, if you back up to chapter 6, it's too late. They have so repeatedly and vehemently and passionately rejected the truth of what God commands. Parents, you can't hear it enough. If you nurture a complaining spirit in your children, they're going to grow up and be complainers. And that's why God executed a significant percentage of the people of Israel. And then the command for us in the book of Philippians to do all things without grumbling or complaining. All things without grumbling or complaining. You can't bypass that. A person who embraces that and experiences true repentance for his complaining 
is the person who shows himself to have taken on the mind of Christ. He wants to be humble. He wants to learn to express things without a complaining spirit. Verse 10 says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. I'm returning. I'm returning as a lion, no longer as a lamb. And I'm coming back to execute those who have rejected me. You say, why does, why does all this work out like it does? God is sovereign. He's totally in control. He is God. Before he created everything, there was nothing. So of course he's in sovereign control of all of it. Why even create mankind if mankind would be such a problem? And especially if he's sovereign over all things. He determined somehow to produce a public drama. The stage of the world is that place in which God has displayed his glory in a way that he deemed sovereignly and intelligently and wisely and lovingly to be the best scenario in which to display his glory. That's why. And those who mock at his word, particularly those who have influence on others, you know, let this trickle down into your lives, fathers. The man who is a king, the man who is a ruler, has substantial influence over a lot of people, and he's responsible for all the problems he causes the whole nation. Don't think that's not true for you and your family. You know, what current sins are you hanging on to? What is it about your life that you're refusing to acknowledge? And yet you look at your kids and just scratch your head and say, I don't know why he's like he is. Have you looked in the mirror? Romans 3.23, as you know, tells us the wages of sin is death. <clears throat> Kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Fear means fear. It means to have a righteous appreciation and reverence for who God is and what he does to sinners. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. This is why nearly every Sunday in my opening prayer, I ask the Lord corporately to help us to reckon with where we have failed him, but to equally and vibrantly rejoice in what he has accomplished lest we become the behavior modificationists who just rejoice in what we've done. Look at all the good things I did in my lifetime. But rather to rejoice with trembling. Seems contradictory. What a strange combination of terms. To rejoice with trembling? Yeah. It's the trembling that keeps you in check. It's the rejoicing that keeps you moving. You rejoice in him because of who he is and what he's done. But you tremble because of what he might do if you don't do what you are supposed to. And what are you supposed to do? You rest in him. You claim no credit for anything good. You rest in and rejoice in him while keeping yourselves within the proper spirit-filled enclosure of trembling. Let that be a protective device for you 
acknowledging that when there's a sign in the road, it's there for a reason. When there's a sign in the scripture that warns you against allowing your eyes to look upon the harlot, the hardly dressed woman, to not even look upon her, that that leads you certainly into adultery. There's a reason for that. And the reason is that it's going to lead you to tremble. And that trembling is going to give you a healthy, spirit-filled reminder of what is to come if you do not, in fact, give homage to the Savior. Verse 12, in our final verse this morning, kiss the son lest he be angry. This is primarily why we call this a messianic psalm. A messianic psalm is one that looks to the Messiah. Some scholars have debated this. Liberal theologians don't want this to be about Jesus. Oh, Jesus would never get angry. He will judge the quick and the dead. He will judge. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. And you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. The king's ring in Old Testament eras represented him, but it ultimately represented the kingdom. And to kiss his ring would be to show homage to him, to get close enough to him to actually be able to have tactile contact with him and kiss him would have been far too dangerous. This is a symbolic expression. To kiss the king, not really a possibility in most kingdoms. But to reject the command to kiss the king would certainly lead to one's execution. It would have been a public, painful, humiliating, shameful execution. But this king has not only allowed for, but established a scenario in which that kiss is actually possible. In fact, it's a certainty. In Luke 22, verse 47, while he was speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? An act that is an expression of the affection of love the loving, mutual joy that two individuals share with each other. Judas, will you betray me with that? Will you do it publicly? And of course, we ought always to think of Proverbs that tells us that faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. He says he loves Christ. He wants people to think he loves Christ. And yet behind closed doors, he proves himself to be a person who loves himself. And he does not love 
Christ. How do you know that about a man who has that pattern? Well, first of all, because it's a pattern. And second, because he shows no legitimate interest in rejecting it and repenting from it. It's the man who fails in this way by being a hypocrite from time to time, but exposes it himself that you can trust. Because every man is a hypocrite from time to time. And every man is a failure and has weaknesses and sins, at least from time to time. But it's the man who is willing to say, I tremble at the prospect of being deemed to be one who has plotted against the Lord, who has devised and embraced the developments of other men's false theology and embraced them because it feels better than what you actually read in the Bible. This was Judas. This was Judas. Judas lived a heretical orthopraxy. He did not believe the truth. Proverbs 14, 26 says, in the, in the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. The final phrase in this passage, blessed are those who take refuge in him. Who is it that takes refuge in him? Is it the person who's willing to claim the name of Jesus Christ in public? It doesn't really mean anything. It's the person who's willing to do it in private. It's the person who, yeah, of course he does it in public, but he does it in private. The privacy of his life shows homage to the Lord. Not a physical kiss, but what the physical kiss represents. An allegiance. It's a homage to the Lord and to his people. Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. But back up again to Proverbs 14.26, who's this talking about? The man who finds refuge in the Lord is the man who bears children who find refuge in the Lord. It's not a guaranteed promise that it's always going to go that way, but the person who is experiencing the great difficulty that his children are running from the Lord, or even worse, pretending to love the Lord when he clearly doesn't, he ought to think about how he has influenced him. Men, women, is the Lord truly your refuge, or is he your Sunday morning captain whom you salute because you're in the same room. While this is a divine warning of compassion, it is an eternal caution of imminent wrath with a dire call to wisdom, fear, rejoicing, and refuge. while it's a corporate call to nations and specifically to the leaders of nations, the promise of eternal blessing is for every man who will take shelter in the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Look with me just momentarily at Proverbs 1. We'll finish with this. Proverbs 1. Verse 20. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the market, she raises her voice. 
At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you because I have called and you refused to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded because you have ignored my counsel and would have none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away and the complacency of fools destroys them. Stop there. God mocks the one who turns from him and in particular the one who pretends that he hasn't. the hypocrite, the Pharisee. And God declares a divine denunciation, a divine disrespect, divine dominion over, and a divine death threat against the one who continues to live in that mindset. And yet, much like the hope we find in verse 12 of our psalm this morning, the last verse in Proverbs 1 says this, But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. And so I ask you and I plead with you this morning, whether it's you who are continuing in some measure of self-deception, unwilling to seek the assessment of others, or someone you know and love, will today be the day? that you will truly turn to the Lord, to turn from your plotting against the Lord, your rejecting of sound theology, your rejecting of the truth of who the person of Christ in fact is, his dominion over all things. Will you rest in his accomplishment on the cross, that he in fact died for sinners? that all who take refuge in him for propitiation, that God would be satisfied with what Christ in fact accomplished on the cross. Will you be that person? Will you encourage others to be that person who would rest in what Christ accomplished in his death and in his resurrection, which proves itself when that happens in a legitimate pattern of obedience, a willingness to call attention to your own sin, to do so because you fear God and not man. Father, we thank you for the Son. We thank you for your Son who is the King of kings, that he, in fact, is the one whom we've been called to kiss, to display homage, allegiance, 
We are his possession. He is our Lord. And therefore, we long to obey him. We meditate on your word day and night. Our delight is in your word. Lord, we don't want to be people who, who will stand in the way of sinners or to sit with scoffers receiving their counsel. Lord, if there's even one person in this room this morning who has a proclivity to listen to ungodly and particularly pharisaical, untrustworthy people, may you strike his heart this morning with fear and trembling that he would reject that ungodly plotting against you, that he would embrace the kindness of the Savior who provides atonement for all who will take refuge in him. And we ask this in his name. Amen.